Welcome to a new episode of Infinite Games, where every week I sit down with a founder, operator, or investor working at the edge of what's next, all to decode what they've mastered and understand how they see the world. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Chris Saru, who found and signed multi-platinum and Grammy Award-nominated rapper Logic, launching an incredible career as the CEO of Visionary Music Group. What's more incredible is that's after Chris was rejected from every major music label after trying to break into the industry as an intern. His common response back was that he lacked enough experience. He even got a rejection letter from Def Jam, who later became the record label to sign Logic. This episode is a special one because we cover so much ground. We talk about how Chris spots talent and why he knew Logic was going to be huge when he was giving away his music for free online under the name Hyperlogical. We talk about the role of an artist manager and why Chris sees his role as owning and shaping Logic's brand, which includes everything that he does. We talk about why Chris is so focused on what he calls stacking small wins and why success is a result of patience and persistence, not so much luck. Chris shares all that he's learned working at the intersection of music, culture, and hip hop, and how that shaped the way he sees the world. And we chat about how Chris got started as an angel investor and about the debut fund that he's raising now. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Zarou. That's Chris, Z-A-R-O-U. And you can find Visionary Music Group online at teamvisionary.com. For links to everything that we cover, as well as our favorite takeaways from this episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 69 for the full show notes. Let's jump in with the man, the legend, Chris Saru. Chris Saru, it is a huge honor to have you on the show. So thank you so much for coming on. And I am so excited to talk about music, about investing, and about how much those two actually relate to each other that most people wouldn't suspect. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So I want to start off the first part of this conversation by one of the things that's fascinating about your background and your story is you find this promising artist who was incredibly unknown. This is more than a decade ago, who now has become incredibly well-known, which is Logic. So we'll talk about that arc and being a part of Logic's growth over a long, long amount of time. But I want to start off the conversation by talking about how you broke into the music industry in the first place, because you didn't have that as your background. You knew that you wanted to try to get in. And so doing research for this, I read a story about how you basically went from major label, record label to major record label, applying for internships. You got rejected by all of them, including Def Jam, who later ends up signing Logic. Can you just tell a little bit of that story? Like, what was it like for you to be trying to break in? How difficult was that period of your life like? Sure. So I kind of started the artist management company and started managing my first clients out of necessity, right? I had no other choice. Just like you said, I kind of went to record label after record label after record label and was getting basically nowhere. I was getting every door closed in my face. So my mentality was like, all right, I don't really think I have a choice. I'm gonna have to do this myself. So what I did was I went out and just started looking for talent and reaching out to the talent and being like, hey, listen, I have no experience. I think I understand how to build audience on the internet. Give me a shot and let's figure it out. But it was frustrating for me because generally getting an internship is a way to break into the business to get your foot in the door. And I was getting rejections with really no explanation. And the funny part is you bring up Def Jam, right? That's ultimately where my first client Logic signed to. I remember going down that process and it was probably one of the last interviews I had. I was so frustrated. I was like, I just wanted some sort of clarity or an answer on why. And the response 
from the woman who I was interviewing with was that I didn't have enough experience, which was just, it didn't make any sense. I'm like, well, that's what an internship is for. So out of frustration, I kind of just said, you know what, I'm going to end up doing it myself. And that's kind of how I stepped into the business. Which I love because I think a lot of people wouldn't make that conclusion because I think a lot of people look at that and be like, that seems way scarier. I've got to go find that talent. It's all on me to make it work and to find this talent. What do you think it was about you that that seemed either easy or just like, this is what I need to do. So I'm just going to go and get it done. Yeah, I think I had that mentality and I've always had that mentality. It's like, okay, by any means, I'm just going to try and get it done and accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. So if I went to the traditional route and I didn't get anywhere and I kept hitting a wall, let me try and figure out a way to go around that wall. And to me, it was, well, let me try and build it myself. And now over a decade in and being much more self-aware than I was at that time, I was probably 19. It was definitely a right approach for me. I think if I had gone the traditional route and been stuck in a major label system from that age, from an internship, and then maybe turning into a job, it was a weird and unique time in the business. There was so much that was changing. And I think because I wasn't in that system, I got to approach everything with a fresh perspective, my own perspective. Well, this is how I think you should build audience. This is my approach to building an artist's career using the internet. Let me be a little contrarian, right? Okay, major record companies want to monetize music. Let me give that product away for free and build audience and monetize down the road. So I had this whole new approach that I can confidently say now is probably the only reason that I succeeded because it was completely new and completely different. And if I had tried that traditional route, I don't think I would have been successful, to be honest. Yeah, which is fascinating because you go in and you have a very different approach. You find a very different artist who uses a very different playbook to become successful. It's like literally across the board is that all seems to line up. Can you share a little bit about what was it like when you first heard Logic's music? And I understand at the time he was basically just dropping singles for free online on a handful of like obscure sites and forums. How did you find him in what was that feeling or sense of like, this is it. I need to go really try to get this artist. Yeah, it's actually a really funny story. I call it kind of serendipity, right? So I was managing an artist at the time out of Philadelphia, and his DJ was from Maryland. In the early days, this is probably 2010, late 2010 on Twitter, maybe early 2011, and his DJ had tweeted a YouTube link. There was no anything description. So at the time, videos didn't get embedded in Twitter. So I clicked on the link, and it was a minute and a half video of Logic rapping acapella, and I was just blown away. I knew there was something there. I needed to kind of dive deeper. And I kind of searched and looked for things. He didn't really have a lot of music out. There's barely anything I could find. He didn't even have a ton of social media accounts. I believe his name was still psychological at the time. It wasn't even logic. So what I ended up doing was finding his personal Facebook account and just friending him and then messaging him and starting a dialogue that way. But I think about it all the time now, right? It's like, if at any moment I had not been in front of my computer and on Twitter at that given time, his life and very much likely mine would just completely be in different places right now. So it was a moment like that where I just curious, quick to click to tweet and then was compelled enough to reach out and start a conversation with him. I love that you brought up serendipity there because I've had that same thought of like so many of the best decisions I've made, things I've done in my life have been a result of serendipity. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about, I don't just like, what is that? How can I cultivate that? Do you have any thoughts there? Like how prominent of a theme is serendipity in all of your work? (laughs) Oh, it is incredibly prominent. And I'm going to use something that a good buddy of mine is a venture capitalist. His name is Blake Robbins, came up with the term. He said, engineering serendipity. 
What I mean, it's surrounding yourself with really bright, forward-thinking, innovative thinkers and having conversations, challenging your own beliefs, being open-minded to introductions, getting to know new people, because what that will do is create and engineer serendipity, right? It's played such a big role in my career, not being afraid of looking silly or... It's funny, I had a meeting yesterday, and I was explaining them my process about how I learn things. I probably was talking about when I went down like the crypto rabbit hole, right? Where I reach into my network and I meet three, four, five of the subject matter experts I could meet. And a couple of these ended up being Fred Ursam, who's a co-founder of Coinbase, and Anthony Pompliano. These guys are incredibly knowledgeable. And what I would do is set a meeting with them. And at the time, I think we did it over Zoom. Pomp lived in New York. We grabbed a drink together. And I'll just fire questions at them. Yes, a million. And that's how I learn. It's almost like an interrogation. When I'm curious about something, I want to meet with someone who knows way more about it than I do and kind of interrogate them essentially. And the individual who I was meeting with, who I was telling that story, he goes, aren't you afraid of looking stupid? I was like, that doesn't bother me at all. What does that matter to me, right? I was looking to learn something and that's kind of what I've done my entire career. I look at it peppered throughout the business, like doing Logic's first record deal. I was 20 years old. I was a senior in college. I was studying for finals and also negotiating his record deal at the same time. So what I did, I hired a great attorney who we still work with this day. And every single little detail in that contract, I interrogated and fired questions at that attorney. That's how I learned. And then the next deal I did, I had a lot more knowledge on it. And that's kind of how I've always done and approached things that I was unaware of. It gives me confidence. Yeah. And I love that you have the ability to just lean into that and not worry about how you look, not worry about how you come across because you're obviously just like, doesn't matter. I'm starting from zero. Never crossed my mind. I'm not there talking to that individual hoping that they like me. I'm there to try to better myself for my client. That's it. That's all I cared about. Or learn about something so it could make me a better investor. That was the goal. Yeah, I love that. One of the things I learned researching for this episode, so you find this obscure artist that you think is really promising. You then basically go and pitch him and say, I don't have any experience here, but here's the things I think I can do and why don't we partner? And one of the things I thought was really fascinating was hearing Logic talk about that and bring up the point that what he felt really comfortable was, one, he felt like you had his best interest in mind and everyone else he interacted didn't seem like they had that. But two, and this quote really stuck out to me, he's like, you needed him as much as he needed you. <laughs> it was this really like tight lock-in. Did you share a little bit about that? Did you feel the same way? And what was your sense when you finally got him to say like, yeah, let's do this? Yeah. I mean, because I think that conversation spanned from when he talks about it to this day, it was just trying to be genuine and authentic. If I had approached it and was lying about some of the experience I had or success that I had, it was me just being incredibly honest and genuine and saying, hey, listen, Give me a shot because I think we can do this together. We're the same age. He was in the same exact spot as me, had previous managers he didn't have any luck with. So it was more just about like, hey, let's try this together. And worst case, it just doesn't work out, right? I didn't ask him to sign any paperwork. I was like, give me a shot and would walk him through. And I think that's something he appreciated from the early stage of our career. I would take the time to walk him through and educate him what I was doing. I remember one or two of the first videos or singles that were released together. And he's talked about this publicly too. It's kind of funny. We joke about it all the time now. They had done better than he had ever in terms of views or streams than he had ever done previously. And he accused me of like, are you buying views? Are you paying for views? <laughs> so I had to sit him down and kind of walk him through. Hey, no, let's go into YouTube back end. You can actually see where they're coming from. This is this music blog. I have a relationship with them and walk him through that way. So it was very much like to be honest, we were going through the learning experience at the same exact time. And what that enabled us to do was test and try things. This was 
the wild west of like the creator economy it was very early days of it and okay who can we partner with which creator makes most sense for your demographic and that's where like the phase clan partnership came from and that was instrumental and we were just constantly trying things we're not afraid to fail and if we did we kept moving we try something new and i think him having that open-mindedness enabled us to do that and it was great yeah. And you having, I think, the approach to be really comfortable with experimentation. It's like you guys were both trying to get to an answer together. I think you have to. And I think any good builder will not be afraid to do that and to try things. And we were trying to build something from scratch, right? And what also was helpful, and I talk about this a lot, is paying attention to the small wins. That's what kept us going because there was never, particularly in the first couple of years, there was never this just massive moment of growth or success. So every single day that we saw some sort of positive momentum, that kept us going. As we had a thing, we'd say, hey, small wins add up, right? And then you get momentum and it had win the week, then you win the month, then you win the year, right? That's how we approached everything. And that's what kept us going, especially through the early days when it was really difficult. If his social following was going up or every single we were releasing was doing a little bit better than the one prior, that would signal something positive. We're doing something right. Let's keep going. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'm curious, in those early years, what was your thought or approach in terms of what your job was as the manager? Was it to basically help bend the curve and help him grow his audience and just to stack up those little wins? Was it defining who he was? How did you think about what your role was? It was kind of all of that put together, right? I think more importantly, if I could boil it down, it's a good manager is going to bring an artist's vision to life. He's the creative individual and he has certain visions for what he wants to do, whether it's with a single rollout or whether it's with an album and how cohesive is it and what does he want everything to look like. And then me also figuring out what I was good at, right? I, I think I understood consumer behavior pretty well. I think I understood this era of the internet and how to build an audience early. And as you start working with a client, you have this phase where you have to kind of feel each other out, see how they work, they know how I work, and then you start to gain trust. Some of the things that I would suggest or kind of try to nudge him or push him, I think that trust enables the relationship to grow and expand. So you don't have to have this constant headbutt. And I think that's healthy in any partnership, right? The way I look at an artist-manager relationship, it's a partnership. And at certain times, he's got to lean on me and trust me and my vision. There's oftentimes where I lean on him and trust his vision outright. And I think that's what enables any great partnership. But yeah, it's kind of all the above, I think. And you manage every client differently. You kind of mold the management style around their personality is the way I've tried to do it. That's fascinating. And I guess what's going to be most helpful or even what's needed by that individual artist? what their goals are. You kind of shift it and mold it around whatever their ambition or goal is, right? What do they want their brand to be? What do they want to represent in their space? And you kind of shift the style and approach towards that. Some artists want to communicate five times a day. Some want to talk to you once a week, right? It's totally different. One of the things I thought was fascinating researching the story of you and Logic working together as you continue to get more and more successful was that it was a lot like bootstrapping a business. Like literally in the early days, you guys started with nothing, no money, giving away free music, trying to build an audience, stacking those little wins with no big breakthroughs. And then you have this major moment where you end up signing a contract with Def Jam after you turning down another term sheet, which we could talk about in a second. But you take all those proceeds and you basically have to put almost all of it back into the quote unquote business, back into Logic to go on this tour to head towards this next goal on the horizon. Is that kind of how you both viewed it? This was bootstrapping a business. This is how we do it. And we're always kind of reinvesting in order to grow the platform, kind of grow the audience. Yeah. What's funny is like, you know, when you're 2021, 20, I don't know if I viewed it as bootstrapping it, to be totally honest. 
it was what we had to do. That's kind of how we lived our daily lives. Okay, we're going to do what we need to do to succeed. And it was a point where I felt we were building things. There seemed to be demand there. And again, this is a lot of it is intuitive at the time. This is 11 years ago. We did not have the data that you have today. If I have a backend product from Spotify, the data they give you is absolutely incredible. Nothing like that existed. Spotify didn't exist in the US at the time. So let alone any type of that data, even metrics on social media weren't really there. So it was very intuitive where, hey, I think we can go on the road and probably put a 25, 30 city tour together, right? He agrees with me. Cool. We check that box. How are we going to make that happen? I didn't know what venture capital was. I didn't know you could raise capital. I had no clue, let alone would anyone even invest in us at that point? Probably not. We had no track record. I had no experience. He had no experience. We had no revenue. So, okay, you just go through that thought process. Where are we going to get the capital from? Well, we have 25 record deal offers. Should we probably entertain one of them and maybe use that capital to fund the tour? And that's kind of where the thought process. So it was almost like, okay, what do we need to do to take the next step? So that's kind of where that thought process came from. Yeah, super basic. And it's literally like your back's up against the wall. What do you do next? What's the next move? Correct. One of the things I love about that story too is it's not like that first tour was in a glamorous bus like you typically would see on the road or outside of venues. It was in a minivan and a Nissan Altima (laughs) at the same time. So you had signed Logic. You had literally been the manager for an artist that signed on with Def Jam, was on this first nationwide tour. And at the time, you also had a job basically working at a retail store in a mall to earn income as you were doing this. And something that starts to kind of bubble up for me is I gathered that you just have a lot of grit and determination and that you didn't even think about it for a second. You were like, this is what I need to do in order to make this happen. What did that experience teach you of like, you have this ambitious thing that you're pursuing with big dreams on one hand, and you're also just doing what it takes in order to move forward and handle everything. What did you learn from that experience? (laughs) I think I learned that the benefit of hard work, I tried to approach being an entrepreneur almost from like a blue collar work ethic perspective. And Again, going through so much and learning so much about myself, I know now that that came from insecurity. I knew I didn't have any experience. I knew there was moments I really didn't know what the answer was. And I think anyone who's been an entrepreneur, is currently an entrepreneur, you're going to have those type of moments. So I said, well, let me just work as hard as I can to try and figure it out and do whatever it takes to succeed. And I knew I wasn't the smartest guy in the room and I'll never be the smartest guy in the room. Again, doesn't bother me, but that's where I think a lot of that grit and determination came from and probably mixed in a little bit with my competitive sports background and playing sports really competitively from a young age. And you got to see at that basic level, okay, the more I practice, the better I got. And I kind of had that approach to business as well. It's a great point. I'm so glad you brought that up because we didn't talk about that part of your background. And that makes me wonder, how important do you think being competitive in sports growing up and that mentality, even just like what you said a few minutes ago around stacking small wins together. It sounds like something a coach is going to say to players on the field, get better and better. How much of that background do you think really helped you to be able to be as successful as you've been? For me, I think it was imperative. Now look at the world of business as a new competitive arena for me, I'm competing against myself. And to me, it's just kind of the foundation and it's fundamentally who I am, right? I'm competitive by nature and being able to do it in this world was everything for me. And I think that's also probably what subconsciously drew me to the music business. It's a very small business and very competitive. I would say there's less successful hip hop artists than there probably is athletes in just the NBA, which is one sport. So that's the way I look at it. And that's the way I approached it. And it was like, okay, in order to be one of those successful artists or successful managers, we have to compete at a really high level. And I think I was drawn to that and I enjoyed it. 
I want to pause for a second to ask just a super basic question, which is something I've never really had a great understanding is, is structurally how music works. So you have an artist, you have an artist manager, you have a record label. How does that relationship work? And what's the record label responsible for on its own? The record label is, say they're responsible for a lot. Some are great, some aren't. So I guess at the basic level, the way I look at it, an artist manager is kind of the CEO of an artist brand. So you oversee everything. You're instrumental in a lot of the major decisions being made. You handpick part of the management team, right? That's your staff that you need. You also help them pull in an attorney. You help them pull in a business manager to handle their financials. And you're instrumental in choosing partners like a major record company or a major publishing company. And that's kind of how I look at what a, a manager does at a high level. And the label is supposed to plug in and be a marketing engine to help you with that. What I look at is kind of an extension through the manager, because as a manager, what people don't realize, you're not only managing the artist, you're managing the entire record company. You're having those conversations on a daily basis. There's very little opportunity for them to interface with the artist generally. It's going through the manager, right? So you're also managing entire staff of people. You need to keep them motivated, right? Like a conduit for the artist in so many different ways. And you want to pull a label in where you need to, and they have their staff, they have resources, and you want to be able to kind of pull them and use them and hold them accountable, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. One of the things that fascinated me, and we're going to talk about this more in a little bit, because you've started investing and now you're raising a fund, which is really interesting. But you know, obviously there's some similarities, which we're going to get more into, into music and investing, especially as I started prepping for this interview and thinking about it more. And one of those is just being able to, you have to be able to spot talent. You have to be able to embrace risk where you're basically making a bet on a talent. You're leaning into potential. It's incredibly similar to being in venture capital where you really have to be able to see the potential. You don't earn a return unless your investors do. In this case, you don't earn a return unless your artist does, unless your artist actually makes money. Music and investing start to feel very similar. Is that how you think about it? And am I kind of loosely getting that right in terms of maybe what attracts you to both being an artist manager and being an investor? Absolutely. And, and I didn't realize that until I started angel investing and I wrote my first check. Very quickly, I started to learn the similarities. And I can say the way that I look at investments, the stage in which I invest in businesses is probably where those similarities come from. And also, I didn't get into angel investing until I was probably five years into my career, where I was a little more self-aware about what my skill sets were. When I was starting out, I had no previous experience. I was still in college, so hadn't really worked, hadn't really done anything. Again, I was working in retail at a mall, right? So I had to learn by operating on a daily basis. And I think over time, I sort of realized, okay, that's probably something I'm actually good at. And that's probably something I'm decent at. And after the first five years, I, you can start to put together a list of like, okay, here's a few things that I know I'm good at. And I have that little level of confidence in. And then here's a whole list of things that I'm not very good at, right? And I think what good operators and good managers do is you try to find people to partner with and work with who are their strong suits are what your weaknesses are. And I think I've been able to do that. I brought on a business partner, I don't know, nine years ago, Harrison Remler, who I've worked with on numerous ventures to this day. And him and I are yin and yang, right? We're polar opposites and what our strengths and weaknesses are in business. So I think that's a first. And then once I became self-aware of those things and then dove into the investing world, I started realizing, okay, my abilities as a talent manager, for one example, is the ability to find talent. That's something I was doing consistently for years from a young age. A lot of the same characteristics and qualities that my most successful clients have, I was able to pinpoint in a lot of the founders that I invested in. And then as years have gone by and those companies have 
become successful, you realize, okay, there's overlap there, right? They share the same characteristics and qualities. And if I can identify those individuals and bet on them, probably going to be a good early stage investor. And then the second piece of that, the second bucket is one of the things I've been good at and I've done consistently as a manager was always had a unique ability to kind of predict where the world is moving, generally before most people saw it, right? That was the only competitive advantage I had bootstrapping the business was placing my clients where I knew attention would be essentially while real estate was still cheap in that area, right? So partnering with FaZe Clan in 2011, right? People weren't talking about esports, but I knew this was going to be a huge audience and it was growing really quickly and it made a lot of sense for Logic's audience. There was a lot of crossover. So if you can do those things, you can identify talent in an individual and if the business or business model that they're building aligned with my worldview on where I thought the world was moving, I would make an investment. And that's kind of the comfortable place that I kind of fell into as an investor. And I've been doubling down on that and now raising a fund in order to do that because I have a track record and I have a portfolio of 20 plus companies that I've been able to invest in. And it's focusing on that. So I think it's just doubling down on what I've identified as my skill sets. That's all. It brings up a really interesting point where I get the sense, or I guess I would guess that as an artist manager, I'm sure that it feels at times like there's infinite ideas, infinite things you could do, infinite partnerships you could explore, <laughs> platforms you could make a bet on or have a presence on. Do you have an intentional process for whittling that down? And it could be just intuitive. It could be something you've articulated, but how do you weed through all the possibilities in order to identify what you actually want to do, what you think makes sense. You have to be aligned with the artist. I think a lot of times an artist can be super ambitious in whatever they want to do next. You have to be the adult in the room in a lot of situations like, okay, I love that. Can we talk about executing it realistically? And I think that's what a good manager can do because you don't want to go down the path and waste time. And maybe it's an ambitious idea for an album rollout and then you totally botch it and fail. It's probably not a great outcome for that album, right? So sure, it's not necessarily all my ideas. It's also working with the artists and figuring out how to bring a lot of their ideas to life in a reasonable way where you can execute it. And especially in a time from you can't roll an album out for 12 months. That just doesn't happen, right? You can't sprinkle 12 songs over 12 months. You got to also have a realistic approach to it all. Yeah. Going back to logic for a second, one of the things I thought was really interesting is, so I listened to the interview you both did on Guy Raz's How I Built This, which is fantastic. Anyone listening to this should listen to that interview. It's just so much fun. It's from back in 2018. And one of the things that you talk about in that interview is, so we kind of touched on this earlier, where you have these first few years with logic, you're quote unquote stacking up small wins. You feels like there's no breakout moments. And yet you guys start getting pretty close to a breakout moment, which is when the first studio album drops. And you talked about how you would look at how other artists would break out and try to reverse engineer that. And, and I guess the question there is, what did you learn in that process? And is that still something that you try to do today or you always have a loop going in your brain? Yeah, that's something I definitely try to do today. And I think so much has changed in my very short career in the business. I think what I kind of talk about is how how... I say a hundred years of disruption and innovation has happened in the music business, but it got squeezed into one decade. That's really how I approach it. And I started my career right at the beginning of that. So a lot of things, the way we'd approach breaking an artist in 2011, 2012, and 2013, they don't work today. They're not even, they don't even apply because the way people consume music, the way people consume content has dramatically changed. So I think you constantly have to be a student and learn and watch and observe. And that's something I've always been good at. If I find something interesting or if I'm watching a new artist kind of explode, 
I'll go deep and I want to know why. I'll usually get the manager on the phone, say, hey, listen, right? Small business. I generally have a relationship with everyone and say, hey, listen, walk me through one or two things that you'd identify as a moment that helped. What were breakout moments for you and your artists? Like explain to me why. And then that's how I'll approach a new artist that I'm working with. Hey, this is an interesting, hey, are we paying attention to Discord? We can build community on there and things like that. And I also think that's what makes me a good investor is you approaching it the same way. If a business or a business model is really interesting to me, I'll kind of dive deep on it. And like I said, go through the same thing. I'll talk to a handful of people and interrogate them and learn as much as I can. So the next time I see an opportunity that's familiar in the space, I can make a more educated investment because I went down that rabbit hole. Yeah. No, I mean, that's huge overlap in investing where I think the idea that you should specialize and be narrow as opposed to being super broad and looking at a bunch of stuff, because oftentimes you don't end up making investments in a lot of stuff you're seeing for the first time, but it's laying this foundation that you're going to be able to build on later. I want to ask the inverse question, which is if I called you up on the phone and said, I've been impressed by Logic's career and this massive breakout he had, what would you say one of those two iconic moments are? Or if someone was just like thinking to themselves trying to do that deconstruction of that success, what would you hope that they would take away? And what would you hope that they wouldn't point to and look at as a success? (laughs) So the one thing I would take away as a breakout moment, there was really one of them that was just far and above all the others. It was his VMA performance for his single 1-800-273-8255, right? That was an immediate overnight reaction. Woke up the next morning, it was the number one song in the world. Number one on Spotify globally, number one in the US, Apple Music, same thing. And then went on a complete terror at Top 40 Radio in the US, turned into Grammy nomination for Song of the Year, Grammy performance. That was a moment. That was not overnight. That happened, I believe the VMAs was the end of August. So it was probably the last day of August, I believe. It was a Sunday. That song came out April 15th. It was several months in the making, trying to keep the song alive, trying to get creative, slowly build it. And it was that performance and that idea behind it that just blew everything up. But aside from that, it was compounding small wins. Yes, there was bigger moments. LeBron James would tweet something out or Instagram a single out, right? You had those kind of moments that would create larger awareness, right? Or you'd have a song that do really well for a couple weeks, but not really cross over to becoming a big hit. That was the one moment. It was honestly, it was just a lot of grit, a lot of hard work and a lot of compounding small wins. I think that embodies his career to this day. Which makes total sense, but I also feel like that's not the answer anyone wants to hear. (laughs) We live in a world that's looking for silver bullets and like, tell me the one thing I can go and do in 30 minutes. And that's what I want to take away, not the, it's an endless journey and I better just keep going. And if I could jump in there, the example I could give you, and I use this a lot, Logic had that moment with 1-800 because he had worked for five years. That was on his third studio album. And we had done four mixtapes together prior to that. He had perfected his craft. He had put in the 10,000 hours. So when we got that opportunity to perform it at the VMAs, he hit a fucking home run because he was prepared for that moment. If that moment came on his debut album, no shot, no way. He'll tell you he would have shit his pants in the performance. That's what people don't realize. You don't look at LeBron James playing an NBA game and go, oh, I could do that. I laugh all the time. You can watch the Grammys and watch this artist who had put in the 10,000 hours just absolutely nail a performance. But you can have people sit at home and go, I could do that. No, it's there's so much that goes on behind the scenes and the years and years and years of small wins compounding and adding up. 
that enabled that moment. It's just so funny to me that I don't know why people can look at an athlete and say, oh, they're special, they're superhuman, they've worked at that their whole life. But then you can look at an artist and think that you can just do it tomorrow. Especially someone rapping. Yes, it's something about human psychology. I don't know why that is, but it's funny. Yeah. I want to explore this more later in the episode, but just one of the things that struck me and that I've been thinking about a lot is that music and investing are both power law businesses where you're going to have these incredible outsized successes that make up for a lot of failures and a bunch of losses. And so I want to ask one question, which is when you guys booked that VMA performance, especially knowing that that song came out in April, was there any part of you that was like, this is it, this is our moment? Or were you just like, this is just another thing we're doing? (laughs) Just another thing. First of all, if everything went right, it was very complicated a complex performance with a bunch of extras, timing, walking on stage. There was two artists featured on the song that each had their moments to come out. So many things could have went wrong, first of all, right? So you just hope that the performance goes right. And then if the performance was a home run, you can't predict what that turns into, right? Because then it was still another four-month journey to get that song to go number one at Top 40 Radio. So you don't know. And then it was still another four-month journey to get the Grammy nomination, right? So I approach it like we did everything else. Another opportunity, let's do the best we can. And that's it. And I think that's also what kept me sane when you're in your early and mid-20s managing careers of artists. It was the approach of, let's do the best we can. I can't control anything else. Let's just approach this and, and make sure we're prepared and give the best effort we possibly can and move on to the next one. And that was always their approach. Yeah. On the flip side, when you do have one of those amazing successes, what is your approach there? Do you embody the, this is great, but let's just keep moving? Is it like, no, we need to celebrate this. This is a big deal. Obviously, it just seems like there's inverse psychologies. When you're in that kind of stacking small wins, you just need to keep moving forward. And then when you have a win, I feel like a lot of people can, I don't know, it just becomes tricky because you almost don't want to lean into that because you're so trained that those are so few and far between. So (laughs) what's your approach there when there's like just a massive win? I struggled and still do to try to celebrate and enjoy that moment because it was always like, okay, you can get on this never ending race of like, okay, well, that was such a win. Now we're going to have these 20 opportunities. Let me go back into my battle station and make sure we're prepared for those. And that was kind of how it was for a decade. Example, like that performance, you knew that moment and you knew that night something was going to happen. Did I know that it started to become the number one song in the world the next morning? No, but what I do, I immediately woke up. I canceled my flight back to New York. I'm like, nope, I can't be on a plane for six hours right now. Got to work. Got to grind. Got to figure out what I could turn this into. And I think we had that approach and I can't say that it was wrong because it definitely played a role in us being successful, but we could have absolutely took some time to celebrate a lot of the wins that we had. And I think him and I both, we talk about it and we both wish we did a better job at that, but you also got to find the medium because when you do have a win, it's going to propel you to the next opportunity that you need to be ready for and make sure that you hit a home run at. So Yeah. Talking about that song, I mean, it's an incredible song. I was just listening to it on repeat. <laughs> I was preparing for this interview. And, you know, one of the things I learned kind of in all the prep is that, so this song I know had a really, this was really important to Logic, to have a song about mental health, about depression, about suicide, about stuff that no one wants to talk about. And yet at the same time, he's hearing all of his fans talk about and bring up. And so obviously it's incredible to go and do a song about that and to do it in this beautiful and really vulnerable way. But there's this kind of masterful take where then the song, the title of the song is the number for the suicide prevention hotline. And one of the things he brought up was that that was your idea to have that be there. Where did that idea come from? And when you were working on that song with Logic, was there any part of you that was like, this is it, this is going to be a massive success? Yeah. 
I definitely didn't feel that way at any point about that song until probably it came out and I knew that there was something happening on a daily basis. I kept feeling it actually called Logic and convinced them to make it a single. It was never even a single. It was just like an album cut. And where the idea came from, I'm very hands-on with the marketing. I think it's one of my few strong suits, marketing and branding. And when I was approaching that song, when I had my marketing hat on, I wanted always, I kept reminding myself to be authentic because this is such a special subject that you didn't want to seem like you were commercializing it in any way, shape or form. So my approach was, okay, how do you approach this song and this rollout and be super genuine and super authentic to the subject matter of the song? I was like, well, what better way to do it than highlight the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline? So I had the idea. I kind of floated it by logic. He loved it. And then I was like, okay, let me get a hold of the lifeline because I'm like, they're probably not going to be into this whatsoever. So I get on the phone. We did a first initial call and they were very open to it. And then I ended up speaking to the president of the lifeline and they were like, loved it. It was amazing. So we said, cool. And we had permission and we made it the title. And like I said, so many things were stacked against that song from ever being successful out of the gate. Never bothered us because we just wanted to be genuine and approach it. Like, for example, that ended up being a global hit. That number doesn't translate XUS. So that was it out of the gate. Was it the turn? doesn't become plus one. <laughs> no, that's only a US number. So that was very complicated. In terms of being a top 40 pop radio number one hit record, the song opens with someone rapping, singing, I want to die today. That's not very family friendly, right? And so many things were stacked against that song that it was just a perfect storm of things happening. I think culturally, socially, what was going on in the world that it ended up making it become a hit. And I think the performance solidified it. And what helped that performance was he ended up saying some really powerful words after the performance that I think just helped everything and was the cherry on top to it. And like I said, everything aligned socially, culturally to make it become what it was. Yeah. It seems like the start in a lot of ways, honestly, of the kind of mental health movement that now I think people are very open about it and are increasingly open about it. And there's everything from psychedelic therapy that people can embrace to just a lot. It just feels like a topic that's no longer taboo. Did you get any feedback? So you talked to the suicide prevention hotline. Did you ever have a follow-up conversation on like, did they see a massive influx in calls? Like, I don't know, any stories that came out of just people that listen to that song. It was incredible. And I'll botch the stats if I say it, but we've put out a document that they actually shared with us. We went to their, they have a office down in New York City in the West Side and Logic was in town and I live here and we went in and we did a meeting in the middle of the campaign and they printed out a document. We walked into one of the conference rooms and they gave it to us and all these incredible stats on record uh, call volume, record website volume, and 100x increase across the board. And I actually asked permission. I said, can we put this document out? So we literally did. We made them send it to us and we put it out on Logic Social Media. You can go out and find it. It's out there. And how powerful of an impact that it had. And forever, what changed, I think, is going to be his interaction with the public. And one example I can give you why it's completely different than a normal, say, celebrity or musician's interaction. I'm a big Nick fan. So he was in town for maybe his Grammys. I don't know what he's here for. And the Knicks invited us to go courtside. And Logic's not really a sports fan. I'm like, dude, come on, we got to go. So he goes, we sit in courtside. And the whole first quarter, maybe the whole first half, there's this woman a couple rows behind us trying to get his attention, right? And it's the middle of the game. It's very difficult. So at halftime, being the nice guy he does, he turns around and he goes to interact with her. She hands him a FaceTime with her son on it. And he takes the phone. He's talking to his son. His son is bawling his eyes out. And she tells the story that like, he was crippled with anxiety. He wasn't even able to go to school. 
And that song completely changed his life and gave him the confidence to say, okay, well, if Logic is this successful guy and he's having this moment, I can get through it too. And that's what I realized it did because this is 2017. So there wasn't a lot of people, the level that Logic was at in terms of celebrity and awareness that were confident, comfortable enough saying, well, hey, I struggle with these mental health things too, and I battle it and I get through it too. So it gave a lot of people, I think, hope to move on and try and get past whatever they were struggling with. So yeah. Yeah. I just want to pause there and let everyone process that. <laughs> it's a pretty profound story. It's amazing. I want to ask one more question about logic in this period, and then we'll shift to talking about music and investing. One of the things you brought up when we were preparing for this interview that I loved is in your mind that logic is an artist that's broken so many norms and everything from sponsoring an esports team to appearing on a Comic-Con panel to having a song about mental health and depression rapping, he's going to kill himself. Talk a little bit about that. Like one, it seems like that is very much just in Logic's DNA. And it also seems like it's in your DNA. Do you feel like that's just the two of you coming together and jamming on that and really taking it to the highest level? Totally. Very well said. I would agree with that. But we also didn't have the confidence to do it out of the gate. I tell people they can go back because the cool part about an artist's career is everything is public. So I say, go look at Logic's debut album. And we tried to fit in what we thought the box of hip hop was. He was doing his debut album. We got invited to do, he was a double XL freshman. With that, a double XL is a hip hop magazine, legendary hip hop magazine. And they pick a freshman class every year. It's kind of picking the who's who, who's next, right? And we go, we got a stylist and he's wearing this ridiculous jacket. He's wearing gold chains. And it was so not who he was. I knew him, right? He knew himself. He's nerdy. He's a nerd. He loves video games. He loves Quentin Tarantino movies. He loves anime and couldn't talk about that. Couldn't portray that because, and I didn't guide him to be himself because we thought we needed to fit in on hip hop. Went through that experience and it was in between his debut album and his sophomore album where again, it was a reverse engineering someone else and it was completely outside of hip hop. That's the era where Ed Sheeran started to explode, become one of the biggest pop artists in the world. And I was like, look at this guy. He's kind of the antithesis of what a male pop artist is. And I was like, he's so authentically human. And then I started realizing, okay, Adele was having a moment. I was like, wow, the more people lean in at being authentic human themselves, the more success they're having. So that was my takeaway. So what I try to do as a good manager is called Logic and started having those conversations. And I believe that inspired his sophomore album, which is called The Incredible True Story. And it was this story he wrote and there was a theme behind it. It was about anime and it was so him. It was like nerd hip hop. And that's when everything changed. His career just started to really take off to a different level. And we never looked back. Another one of ours, John Bellion, just be authentically yourself and be human and be vulnerable. Right. And then we started having tons of success with John. And it was something my takeaway was. So I think every boundary that we pushed my takeaway from his career so far is I believe we've broadened what hip-hop is as a genre and I think there's a lot of artists out there today that are having success and I won't name any names that Logic paved the way for by us being contrarian in our approach and being confident and brave enough to say well I'm a rapper but I'm doing this too I'm going to speak at Comic-Con so that's something I'm super proud of. Yeah, it seems like in a lot of ways, it's just really broadened what hip hop is. And I guess who's interested in it, who wants to listen to it, who thinks of it as their music. Well, that audience was there. We just exposed it and said, hey, you can be a fan of me too, because we look the same, we dress the same, we like the same anime, we like the same nerd stuff. Like, that's cool. Be a fan of Logic, right? That's cool. 
So I want to transition to talking about investing. And, you know, something I thought a lot about preparing for this interview is just the overlaps between the two. And we've already talked about a few of them earlier on, everything from spotting talent, embracing risk, leaning into the unknown in terms of making a bet on potential. But the other one is they're both power law businesses. So you're going to have some massive successes. Great example is that song 1-800-273-8255 that you don't think is going to be anything ends up being literally the breakthrough moment you've been working through for years. And I've had that experience myself as an investor where I make an investment and I don't know if I'd say I underlooked or underestimated or overlooked or whatever it is, but I just didn't see what this company ended up becoming. Have those moments when you've maybe underestimated something and you've had this massive success taught you anything or given you more humility or changed the way you kind of approach how to think about hits? Yeah, great question. I think nobody really knows. You can have your confidence in what you believe is your strengths and what you're good at. So what I try to do is just double down on that. And if I can do that, I believe the rest will take care of itself. I'm a very specific early stage investor with a very specific check size because it enables me to be nimble and squeeze in competitive rounds because I believe I have a unique value add from my experience, my network to founders, but I understand people. And it's very intuitive for me when I identify those founders and know that they have what it takes to achieve whatever grandiose ambition they're trying to build. For example, my first investment ever was a company called Negotiatus. And I'm dear friends with both the co-founders now. They're amazing, amazing guys. My business partner, Harrison, bumped into one of the co-founders in his laundry room in his apartment complex. And they start chatting. Serendipity. serendipity. And he goes, oh, my partner, Chris, will love you. Come in. So they came to the office one night. We had a couple of Bud Lights. I don't know. We're probably there for two and a half hours going back and forth. And basically from that meeting forward, I just begged them to let me invest off of them, right? It was a very early idea of what their business was. It was their seed round. So there wasn't really a business there yet. That was me just betting on these guys that they're just complete winners. They're going to be able to execute. They're so impressive. They're brilliant. I ended up doubling down on that. I did the Series A. They're on their way to becoming a unicorn, right? Four and a half years later. But that was my level of confidence. I know I can win if I play the game that I'm good at. So that's kind of always been my approach and believing in my ability to say, okay, I understand consumer behavior. I understand where the world is moving because I think I'm constantly curious. I go down these rabbit holes. I meet with people who are much more knowledgeable about a certain area than I am and I pepper them with questions. So then I can see around that corner of where I think the world's going in this space and just try to stay within that. And that gives me the confidence. And yeah, there's definitely been investments that I've underestimated that have been great. And I don't know if it's taught me anything because I do realize like we're all human. Nobody knows everything. And then there's certain things where throughout my career, timing is everything. If 1-800 had happened 12, 18 months prior, probably wouldn't have worked. If it happened on his debut or sophomore album, probably wouldn't have worked. So I step back sometimes after I have a successful investment and like, okay, am I that good or is the timing right in the world right now? It's probably a mix of everything. So you got to stay humble, I think, in it all. Yeah, I think that's the right approach because the world's super complex. There's so much stuff that's not known. You never know how something's going to play out. I mean, I've had that experience so many times with investments where you just, nowhere in your wildest dreams could you imagine what this, you know, I, I had that experience at Square, you know, and I joined Square super early 
early. And I thought that this was an interesting idea that had huge potential. Did I ever think it would be the company that it is today? Absolutely not. But that's what's amazing. And I think that's one of the gifts that we get as investors is you get to see that play out. And I think that gives you a tremendous amount of humility. And it also, I think, gives you a lot of intellectual curiosity because you don't want to underestimate something. I feel like that's why venture capitalists are so much more up to like embrace crypto, which seems like this radical idea that most people want to shit on. (laughs) Sure, exactly. (laughs) You start making these kind of initial investments. When did you decide that, okay, I want to do this in a bigger way and I want to start raising a fund? I think when I had the confidence in my approach and my thesis as an investor, I wanted to get there before I asked anyone for their money and to be a fiduciary. And four years, I was like, okay, I got it. I stepped back. I looked at my portfolio. I looked at my ability to do it, my ability to do it at scale, the relationships I built with founders, the relationships I've built with people like yourself in this space to the point where I said, okay, now I can go out and raise a fund, right? So that's something that I'm in the process and I'm embarking on right now. It's a great new challenge and I'm still sticking to what I know is my wheelhouse. So that approach has not changed. I'm raising a certain size fund so I can continue to write the certain size checks that I've had success writing in the types of companies and founders that I've had success betting on. That's it. Nothing's going to change. So So that's somewhat unusual. I love that you're doing that. I feel like it's really common for people to almost get overconfident. They don't really think it in their minds, but it's almost overreaching. Like someone's not saying, let me do what I've been successful doing. They're saying instead, okay, I've done that. Now I'm going to go do this thing I haven't (laughs) done before. Does that come from lessons you've learned managing artists? Or is that just somewhere in your DNA, like one step at a time? 100%. I think if you have the discipline to just continue to stay focused on what you're good at. The way I actually gave a buddy of mine the analogy when I was explaining my approach and stepping into this new arena of investing, okay, over the course of a decade, I realized, and I'll give sports analogies because I love sports, right? I realized my approach to business is I'm Stephen Curry. It means I'm really good at shooting three-pointers. The way I'm looking at stepping into venture particularly doubling down on those two buckets of what I've identified as my skill set, I'm just playing a three-point shooting contest in perpetuity. That's all I'm doing. I'm just tripling down on what I know and have the confidence that I'm good at because I have a 10-year track record of consistently doing that. Anytime I step out of that and I'm not shooting three-pointers, I don't play well. So I'm like, okay, let's not do that. So I'm just tripling down on that. And it's took me a better part of a decade to figure out what that is. So. Mm-hmm. I love that analogy. One of the things you and I talked about that I want to explore a little bit is I think that you have a fascinating window that really no other investor has by being an artist manager. Cause you've had this window now for a decade plus with one of the biggest artists that's taken off into culture, into music, into changes in technology, into changes in consumer behavior. Talk a little bit about what you've learn through that window and then where that leans you to be able to spot opportunities as an investor? It's something that gives me such a unique insight on a daily basis, right? As the world, because of the internet and technology, is changing so rapidly and so dramatically, I have seven clients in the management company now. We're going through numerous single campaigns, album campaigns. We're trying all new things and we're testing on a daily basis and I'm identifying what works, what doesn't work. That just gives me a really unique insight into consumer behavior, which I believe has made me a better and will make me a better investor on a daily basis because I know what to look at and what companies invest in. Okay, are they going to be able to get that product 
our business off the ground. The way consumers are, whether it's a creator economy or the attention economy, the way that they're behaving right now, is that going to work? Is that going to work in 18 months, 24 months, 36 months? And I think I constantly think about that. And also stepping back and looking at it as a whole, for example, one thing I would have said to you 24 months ago is consumers are stubborn. They don't like to change. And whatever you think is going to happen, it's going to happen slower. The pandemic has completely changed my insight into that because I realized how quick we are as humans to adapt and change. We did it relatively overnight when the pandemic started. Our entire behavior. So now you look at Web3. 24 months ago, I would have said, slow down. Everyone's getting excited. It's going to take a little bit longer. But now, because I was able to witness that and step back and analyze it the way that I look at consumer behavior, I'm like, okay, Web3 is probably going to happen quicker than I think it is. I should start paying attention to the space a little deeper, right? That's kind of my thought exercise. Yeah. I want to ask you a closing question, which is, this has been an amazing conversation and I could talk for 30 more minutes. I want to be respectful of your time. So the question I want to ask is going back to the experience you've had with Logic, but you have many other successful artists now. So I guess the question is really, as you kind of reflect back on the last decade plus, where you were breaking into a new industry, finding these artists that were unknown, helping them be able to achieve their ambitions and realize their ambitions. What has that taught you about success? What are maybe the biggest positive lessons you learned and what are some of the painful lessons that you've learned on that time? Yeah, I mean, you can never underestimate how difficult it's going to be. I had no idea what being an entrepreneur was and what that looks like on a daily basis. I make jokes a lot, but it's like getting punched in the face every day because you're constantly juggling, putting out fires. You never know what's going to happen. And when you're the number one guy, there's no one to point blame at. It's all on you. And if you want to be a founder, you have to know that that's what you're taking on. And it takes a really special individual to build that. And I think that's probably my biggest takeaway from success. And like I said earlier in this conversation, you step back and you look at LeBron James, you have no idea what he's gone through. You have no idea when he has a rough game, the backlash and bullshit that he has to deal with and how he gets through it. People don't realize they just see like the amazing moments when he wins a championship. You have no idea what he went through to get there. So where can people go to find Visionary Music Group to follow you? And I guess, is there a website for the fund or if people are interested? How can We they have out? not publicly announced the fund yet. It will be coming very, very soon. So there will be a website. I haven't publicly set a name or anything just yet. Visionary Music Group, you can just Google it. You can find all the artists, go down that rabbit hole. They're really, really talented, special artists. And then for me, Twitter's probably the best space. It's just at Chris Zeru. And I'd love to chat if you want to hit me or DM me. I think, Daniel, that's how we met over Twitter DM. So (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chris. This has been just a really special, amazing conversation. One of my favorites today by far. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to everything that we covered along with the show notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 69. For more from Chris, listen to his 20-minute playbook interview in episode 70. There we dive into everything from Chris's favorite books, tools, habits, and routines to his favorite failure, all in less than 20 minutes. Finally, visit outlieracademy.com to explore more incredible interviews with the founders of Rally, Titan, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, as well as New York Times bestselling authors and many of the world's smartest investors. From our entire team at Outlier Academy, we hope you enjoyed the show. I hope to see you right here next week on Infinite Games.